This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, I'll discuss with Dr. J. Mario Molina, former chairman and CEO of Molina Healthcare, the COVID pandemic's effects on the Medicaid program. Dr. Molina, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the program. Thank you, David. Dr. Molina's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has caused the worst unemployment rate since the Great Depression. Since Medicaid and the economy are negatively correlated when one's up, the other's down, a recent Kaiser Family Foundation study concluded that by January, 17 million people could be newly eligible for the Medicaid program. That would represent a 24% increase in current program participation. As for state budgets, which Medicaid funding is typically the second largest state expense after education, they've cratered, largely since two-thirds of state income is generated via income and sales taxes. One month ago, the CBPP estimated states that are required to balance their budgets each year are looking at revenue shortfalls totally on cumulative $555 billion over fiscal years 20 through 22. In an effort to shore up state Medicaid programs and mitigate the economic fallout, in mid-March, the Congress increased the federal government's Medicaid match, termed FMAP, by 6.2%. In late May, the House further upped the match to 14% under the HEROES Act. The HEROES Act would also provide more than $1 trillion to state and local governments, including $950 billion in flexible aid. The Senate Majority Leader, however, failed to refuse to take up the House bill. As of today, it appears the President's executive steps taken Saturday to address four non-healthcare-related issues has caused Congress to adjourn until September 17th, that is, Another COVID relief package will at best not be considered until late that month. With me again to discuss the pandemic's effects on the Medicaid program is Dr. Mario Molina. So with that, Dr. Molina has a somewhat uh, lengthy background introduction. Let me begin by asking you generally, what's your assessment of the COVID-19 pandemic's effect on the Medicaid population? I ask that particularly in context of the fact that the Medicaid uh, is largely responsible for covering long-term care facility uh, health care, and we've seen, of course, a disproportionate effect on long-term facility residents. I think that Medicaid patients are going to be disproportionately affected for a couple of reasons. As you mentioned, uh, Medicaid's the biggest payer of long-term care in the country, uh, and clearly those patients have been hard hit but we're also seeing that it disproportionately affects people who are lower income, who are working as essential workers in essential businesses. Most Medicaid patients work, but they're working in low-income jobs, often without health insurance paid for by the employer. So they are probably at greater risk, and we've certainly seen that uh, black and uh, Latino uh, are more affected by COVID than the Caucasian population. Okay, thank you. Yes, definitely the case. Before I ask about uh, the Congress and state responses, let me ask you uh, this question. There's a lot of discussion 
and speculation regarding healthcare utilization, meaning that COVID-19 will, will cause comparatively uh, an increase in utilization. Although interestingly enough, I looked at some statistics that showed uh, because of elective surgeries being canceled or postponed, data showing that in April, uh, healthcare expenditures were down almost 40% and were still down 10% or 10% lower year over year uh, this past June. So this question obviously very much relates to pressure on state budgets. What's your understanding of what we'll see relative to on-balance utilization in the Medicaid program uh, this year and going into next year? Well, it's going to have different effects in different areas. Clearly, hospital utilization and physician visits are down, uh, in part because people are afraid to go to the doctor or the hospital, in part because um, COVID has crowded patients out of elective surgeries. So those things are all down. Testing is going to be up. Testing expenses are up. Um, and I think that overall you're going to see that utilization is lower in the second quarter and probably the third quarter than expected in, in, from previous years. Um, and I think that it's going to remain that way for a while. People are still afraid to go to the doctor for many things, and there is concern that as a result, things like cancer screenings and some treatments will be deferred. So we could see some pent-up demand perhaps next year, but I do think that for the remainder of this year, overall service utilization will be lower than expected. Some areas it'll be higher, but overall it'll be it'll be down from previous years. Okay, so in some ways that's a relief for comfort to individuals trying to budget state uh, share of Medicaid spending. Let's go to uh, congressional efforts. I noted that moreover uh, the Congress in its first supplemental increased the federal share so-called, again, FMAP uh, by 6.2% beginning this past January, and then HEROES more than doubled it. However, again, that bill was not taken up on the Senate side. And then it does look as if it is the case, in fact, that the recent negotiations between Pelosi, Schumer, and Mnuchin are over or concluded until September. So uh, with that, again, as context, what's your sense of uh, opportunities for Congress to uh, provide more support of the Medicaid program, or specifically, what should you think Congress do to support the Medicaid program uh, going into what is now for 46 states, uh, fiscal 21 as of July 1? So as you pointed out earlier, states don't have the ability to run uh, deficits. They've got to balance their budgets. And Medicaid is traditionally been the second largest expenditure behind education. So since it's a federal matching program, the states do have some responsibility. But uh, under the Affordable Care Act, Medicaid expansion is now funded 90% by the federal government. On average, states' state share of, of spending is less than half. So the average federal match is about 62%. As you mentioned, the federal government has increased that by 6%, so now we're talking about 68%. But the Medicaid rolls are expected to grow by a large number. Mm -hmm. You mentioned 24%. Um, the states really can't absorb that, especially at a time when their tax revenues are down. So I do think that the federal government is going to have to step in and augment the federal match. 
And you're going to see a lot of pressure from governors on Congress and on the White House to increase the matching funds in the short term. You know, you also mentioned that the utilization being lower might be a, a good thing for states. It's not really, because what happens is most states have entered into contracts, managed care contracts, with health plans. So the utilization doesn't control their spending. It's the number of people enrolled in the program. Each person enrolled in the program uh, is assigned to a health plan, and that health plan gets a per-member, per-month premium. So even while the, the utilization goes down, the state's spending is tied to that premium amount, and it will go up regardless of the utilization. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because, and this gets into the next uh, issue about what states can do to try and um, uh, rethink their funding for the Medicaid program. And this gets to the MLR issue. So uh, managed care organizations that take a state Medicaid contract, they get a per-member, per-month payment, regardless of utilization. So if the, if the beneficiary overutilizes, the, the provider gets no more money. What, in my reading, I, I've learned that states have not been, uh, say, as aggressive as they can be or should have been in collecting monies that were left unspent uh, by the managed care organization because those monies exceeded their their medical loss ratio percent. If, if yes, you're absolutely it right. It gets very technical, uh, I realize. At, um, if you look at the ACA... Um, Medicare has an 85% loss ratio requirement, Correct. and the federal government can claw back money. A large group commercial is 80%, and there was a rule that said that Medicaid was supposed to be 85% and that health plans have to report on this. But there is not a requirement that states claw back if those MLRs don't reach 85%. It is written into some state contracts that the health plans must return money if it's below a certain amount. But for the most part, with the exception of a handful of states, there's no requirement that the Medicaid managed care plans return money to the state or return premium to the state if they fail to meet that 85% MLR requirement. I suspect that in the next round of contracts, states are going to begin implementing that. They really should. Um, but for right now, the health plans, for the most part, do not have an obligation to rebate any money. And you're going to see that the Medicaid plans or the Medicaid portion of large companies like United or Anthem um, are going to do very well financially this year, and you'll see record profits. Right, yes, yes. Uh, as they would say here and elsewhere, um, the states are leaving money on the table. Let, let me. I'll get back to the states, but let me just stay with a follow-up question or two relative to the federal government. Um, and I'm sure you have... Um, uh, a view of, of these two issues. One is there's been informal discussions in D.C. about the federal government not just raising FMAP but fully funding the Medicaid program uh, or at least create under Medicare a long-term care policy since Medicaid funds over 55% of what are called long-term services and supports. So whether the feds just pass legislation to provide greater financial support or Medicaid or offload some of the Medicaid utilization of Medicare distinction without a difference, I'm assuming states would uh, welcome that. Am I correct? Well, I think in the short term, states are going to want more financial support. 
But remember that Medicaid is administered by the states, and they have considerable latitude, especially through the use of waivers, as to how they administer the program. I think over the past few decades, we've seen an increasing federalization of the Medicaid program, and it began with the Clinton administration. When the Clinton health plan failed to pass, the Clinton administration became very liberal in authorizing waivers to allow state Medicaid programs to experiment with new new ideas, new delivery systems. And I think that with the Affordable Care Act and the expansion of Medicaid and the augmented um, match, that the federal government played a bigger role. And of course, you know, he that pays the piper calls the tune. Right. So the more the federal government pays for Medicaid, the more control uh, they're going to expect. And I think there's going to be some friction there. But I do think in the short term, the states are looking for financial help. Um, they may not be happy about what they have to give up in order to get that. A good example of that is uh, redeterminations. So typically, when you're on Medicaid, you have to reapply to certify that you still are financially eligible. Some states are doing that quarterly. Well, uh, with the augmented money, the federal government said you can't do these redeterminations and kick people off the Medicaid program. So typically there's a 3 to 5% churn rate where people are, are leaving the program or coming back on, and that churn rate's gone to almost zero. Mm -hmm. As a result, the Medicaid rolls are bigger now than they were a few months ago. Not, not so much because more people have entered the Medicaid program, but because fewer people are dropping off. Right, less churn, as you said. Let me let me just ask. Uh, the Trump administration proposed what they termed healthy adult opportunity. This was an idea to cap, go the other direction, federal contributions to the program, and shift to a predetermined block grant allotment for states. So that is now out there, obviously enjoying zero discussion at the moment. Well, sure. I mean, I think the federal government has been trying for years to uh, cap their spending, especially under the Republicans. And the idea of a block grant has been floated a number of times. The idea being that rather than doing a per capita payment or a matching payment, the federal government would just give a block grant of money to the states and say, here's your money, do what you want. We'll give you increased freedom. Um, the danger in that is that, uh, as you pointed out earlier, Medicaid tends to be counter-cyclical. So in difficult economic times, the Medicaid rolls grow, and it's more difficult for the states to finance them. And that's the danger of a block grant, and that's why states, for the most part, have shied away from it. If you want to look at block grants, go look at um, the uh, territories, Puerto Rico being the largest. Puerto Rico is under a block grant system. It doesn't get matching funds like the, the states do. And as a result, it's chronically underfunded. Uh, and it's always running out of money. And in some of the territories, when they run out of money, they simply stop providing the benefits. So I don't think that block grants are going to work. And even uh, the most recent proposals have had to include some sort of economic adjustment factor so that it's not a strict block grant. Block grants are a very bad idea for the states. Okay, thank you. And, of course, Puerto Rico is a very interesting case, um, but... Um... We'll, we'll leave it at that. Let, let me go to uh, state responses to date. They've uh, responded in a variety of ways to the effect the pandemic has had on uh, Medicaid state budgets. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar. I could list, I have a, a dozen or so of these noted here. Really, my, my question I'm interested in asking you, and that is, what do you think are more, say, responsible or 
appropriate responses by states to best fund as they can the uh, Medicaid program during the pandemic, less, uh, say, cutting uh, benefits. You know, some states, for example, have cut behavioral health benefits. Some have cut uh, substance uh, use disorder benefits. Um, and then, of course, if you're not cutting benefits, the typical way is you cut uh, reimbursement rates. But there are other things that states have done. What What are your suggestions for better ways of doing this? You know, I think, frankly, states are in a rock and a hard place right now. Um, you pointed out that people have cut benefits. They've tried to cut payments to providers. Neither of those things work particularly well. Uh, the benefit cuts really don't save the states a substantial amount of money because the bulk of the costs are in what are called mandatory benefits, which can't be cut. So you're really kind of wiping the frosting off the cake, but that's not really going to do much to help the state budgets. Um, they're really going to need to look at augmented funding. I think there's going to be pressure to move more uh, high-cost patients into managed care, more of the long-term care services, um, those kinds of things. If you look at the Medicaid program, the bulk of the patients are women and children, and they're not that costly. But the big cost items are people who are the elderly and the disabled. And that's an area that um, states have not done enough with in terms of moving them into managed care and uh, capping their exposure. But I think in the next few years, as a result of this pandemic, there's going to be a big move by states to move those patients into managed care and cap their financial exposure. Correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm sure the distribution varies by population, but you see the statistic from Kaiser and others, and that is Medicaid is, states have farmed out their Medicaid program to 60, 80% or higher to manage care organizations. Is that is that correct? That is correct. But again, if you look at the Medicaid programs, the bulk of what's gone into managed care have been the women and children mm-hmm. who are relatively healthy. Uh, and there's been a, a there's still a fair amount of fee-for-service business among the elderly and the disabled, the age-blind and disabled, as we call them. And I think that's the state's opportunity to save money and coordinate care. Uh, there have been some dual demos, but those have not done particularly well where you take the federal money from Medicare and the federal and state money from Medicaid and combine that into a single contract. They haven't really done much with those, and they haven't been very successful. Um, but I think that is the next frontier. Okay, the duals issue, right, is the, these demos have not proven uh, to work out as intended. Let me ask... Um, and this goes to, uh, this is a generic question. Rahm Emanuel is frequently cited for uh, this observation. I don't know if it's accurate to credit to him, but this the phrase is never, you never want uh, a serious crisis to go to waste. So we're in a serious crisis. So there's a lot of discussion about reinventing uh, healthcare delivering and finance in this country because of what we learned from the pandemic. So my question for you is, in context of this opportunity, meaning that we'd be, we'd be mistaken to just revert back to um, how we delivered and financed before the pandemic. Where do you think the opportunities are uh, in the Medicaid program for improvement uh, post-pandemic? Uh, well, there's no question that, that this represents an opportunity to rethink 
the way we do all of these things, from the way we deliver health care to the way we finance health care. Uh, but I also think that not much is going to happen between now and the election. Oh, yes. Uh, despite yes. the financial pressures that the states face, everyone's going to kind of sit on their hands waiting for the results of the election. If Biden's elected, I think we're going to see attempts to augment and expand on the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I think there are opportunities for states to move more of their high-cost patients into managed care programs, whether it will be through the current managed care contracts they have with HMOs or whether it will be some other kind of risk arrangement, I don't know. The problem we have right now is that the current contracts and the current vendors, the, the HMOs that are managing the Medicaid program, don't really do a very good job of managing uh, long-term care and complex patients. So it may be that there's going to be another vehicle for that or another kind of organization that will step in and manage complex patients because it really does require intensive case management and different skills. Health plans are very good at paying claims, um, but they're not very good at managing the care. So there's an opportunity, whether it's for medical groups or integrated uh, health care systems, to step in and, and pick up this uh, opportunity and, and fill that void, I don't know. But I think we're going to see a lot of innovation coming in 2021 on how we deliver care, how we pay for care, and how we manage the care of the costliest patients. It is the low-hanging fruit that's been ignored for decades. You're right. So this is the classic statistic, uh, 5% in, in, in the Medicare side, similar cross-payer, 5% are, are responsible or account for 50% of utilization. You know, I'd be remiss if I would throw in this sidebar question that is you're aware that having mentioned Medicaid expansion and the Affordable Care Act, that there remain 12 states that have not expanded. Most of these are in the southeast, including it, although it also includes Texas. Um, might we see, particularly since the finances are so favorable for states, you know, there's a 90 plus percent match. It's good, particularly for uh, rural hospitals. Uh, in states where Medicaid's been expanded for their finances. It's good for the general economy. Obviously, it's good for population health. Well, might we see, uh, finally, these 12 states expand their Medicaid programs? Well, a couple of states have recently um, voted to do just that. I think that there's going to be tremendous pressure, especially in Florida and Texas, to expand Medicaid. They have stayed out of the expansion of Medicaid on ideological grounds, mm -hmm. but from a financial standpoint, um, it's been a big mistake. They have left money on the table. They have put uh, providers in a difficult position, especially, as you mentioned, rural hospitals. You know, we're in danger of seeing many rural hospitals close uh, over this issue, and so people who aren't on Medicaid are going to have difficulty getting access to care as a result of this. I really think that there's going to be big pressure for the, the remaining states to accept expanded Medicaid. Yes, let's let's hope so. Lastly, I did want to get this question in, and that is, I know you're working with U.S. of Care. This is Andy Slavitt's organization, the former uh, CMS administrator. And specifically, I know you're working uh, since much of the press these days, obvious reasons, are about opening schools. U.S. of Care is running a program called Open Safely or the Open Safely campaign. Again, you're involved with it. Can you explain 
what this is and what it attempts to accomplish? Well, the United States of Care was originally formed as a bipartisan or perhaps nonpartisan group uh, with the idea to expand access to care and coverage for everyone in the United States. With the advent of COVID, we pivoted and began to develop policies and toolkits, both for the states and the federal government to use uh, during the pandemic. And one of those was this Open Safely, much of which came from the White House. So it's not like we invented this out of whole cloth. Uh, it's a lot of common sense measures that can be done to reopen after a state closes down uh, in response to the pandemic. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the things that were uh, in that document have been kind of ignored. And I think it's, and I don't, it's not a political thing. I think just generally there was so much pressure on state governments to reopen things quickly that they moved too fast and were too liberal. And I think people got careless. And as a result, we saw a big resurgence in the number of cases. We're beginning to see in some of the states like Florida, Texas, California, things beginning to come down. But at the same time, some of the Midwestern states were beginning to see things going up again. So um, it was a well-intentioned um, program that didn't get a lot of traction. Right, and I think the first uh, issue was, and you're right, this was out of the White House, and the first issue, I believe, was that uh, communities should not consider uh, opening unless they show or demonstrate two weeks of declining case counts. And I think that was compromised in several instances. So with that, Dr. Molina, we're at our time. I appreciate this review and your comments on these issues. It will be interesting to see how the Medicaid program evolves over in the next uh, 12 to 18 months, particularly if we have a new administration. So with that, I might suggest I'd, I'd be interested in talking to you down the road and we can see uh, how this conversation has evolved over the interim. So with that, thank you again. Thank you, David. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.